Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for coming. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. Uh, I am your U.S. Senator, LaFonza Butler. Incredibly proud to to be your U.S. Senator and to be here with all of you. Uh, It is an incredible honor to really um, introduce the person to whom uh, requires no introduction to this room and has been a great uh, friend to me uh, over the last number of years that we have gotten to know each other. Gretchen is a sociologist. Uh, studying abortion and adoption at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Sisson, doctor, put some respect on her name. Dr. Sisson is an active member of the Women's Donor Network, and her research was cited uh, in the Supreme Court's dissent uh, in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. As co-founder of the Abortion Bridge Collaborative Fund, she continues to work tirelessly in rapid response philanthropy efforts to address the post-Dobbs needs in abortion provision, prevention prevention, and protection across the country. Last year, Dr. Sisson uh, joined the board of trustees of her alma mater, Amherst College, and is on the board of directors for Emerge America as well as steering the electing the steer, as well as the steering committee for electing women Bay Area, Doctor Gretchen Sisson. Let's be honest, for you, really, uh, we all really are here to see tonight. I will uh, allow Doctor Sisson, of course, to do more work to introduce uh, herself and her book um, uh, and offer some opening remarks before we get into a conversation here on stage, Doctor Sisson. Thank you, Senator. I really appreciate it. And I also really love calling you Senator. Uh, It still (laughs) reigns novel and delightful to me to get to call you that. Um, So I really appreciate you being here. Um, I'm going to start by reading a little bit. And I'm so thrilled to see a lot of my answer UCSF colleagues here because I'm about to start with uh, some of our shared data from the Turnaway study. Um, So this is from Chapter 2. It's called Choosing Life. Um, which was actually the original title for the book, and we can talk about why it's not the title for the book, but you can thank Gloria Steinem for that. Um, So, choosing life. Emily and Sophia were both 19 years old and pregnant. They were also both planning to have abortions, but they couldn't find a way. Emily had lived a transient childhood, growing up as a white girl in Northern California. It's always been just me and my mom, she shared, mentioning that she'd never met her father. But this image of a younger Emily and her mother as a duo wasn't quite the full picture. They'd spent much of Emily's childhood living with one or the other of her mother's parents, moving around to different small cities and rural areas, but always ending up back in the same touristy town where Emily's mother grew up. Her grandmother's household was a large, tight-knit family with young uncles that Emily thought of as brothers and a feeling of being really close with a sense of being there for each other. Emily had graduated from high school a school where everyone had known each other since preschool, a year early, when she was just 17. Her grandfather, the primary father figure in her life, had just died, leaving her with a sense of loss, confusion, and frustration. 
After this loss, Emily moved just a few hours away to the closest place that was far enough, but still close to my family, and quickly became involved with a boyfriend that she described as a little bit of a crutch to help me cope with everything and help me step away from my family. She acknowledged it wasn't necessarily a healthy relationship, but her boyfriend had recently lost his mother and thus understood her grief. It also helped that he had grown up without a father. Emily felt that they were coming from a similar place. When she started feeling sick, Emily assumed she'd gotten the flu from her boyfriend. Her periods weren't regular anyway, so she didn't miss them when they didn't show up for a few months. It took a while for the idea to surface that she might be pregnant. She went to Planned Parenthood to confirm, and she found that she was over five months pregnant. She was referred from one clinic to another. Each time they were like, oh, we think you're too far along. So I was sent to another place. And then they would say, oh, you're too far along, but this person can do it. You're too far along, but this person. Finally, I was sent to a clinic in San Francisco, and I found out that nobody should have sent me anywhere because I was way too far along to begin with. At the last clinic, I did an ultrasound just to make sure. She did all the measurements. This nice lady tried to explain to me exactly. Here's where the measurements should be if it was a possible procedure, and here's where you are. And I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but there's no way you're going to be able to have an abortion. You're going to have this baby. Sophia's story wasn't so different. Growing up in Los Angeles, she was very close with her Mexican-born, Spanish-speaking mother. Sophia's father was incarcerated for most of her childhood and then deported. So her mother relied on Sophia and her three siblings for support and translation after they were priced out of their Hispanic neighborhood and had to move to a mostly white neighborhood. Her mother worked multiple jobs while her aunt would help with cooking and child care. We're a really strong family, Sophia shared. Whatever, whatever a situation happens, we really do have a lot of family that supports us. She spoke about how not having anything is good for us and how it helped her stay humble and learn a lot about life. She knew her new boyfriend, who was eight years older than she was, was distracting her from her work, and she also resented his constant need for her time and attention. When she began to have some abnormal bleeding, she went to the emergency room while her boyfriend stayed on the couch. Could she be pregnant? The nurse in the ER asked her. She told them, no, not that she knew of, but an ultrasound revealed that she was. And even though she recognized that she had no financial stability, a disengaged boyfriend, a deep anxiety about increasing the burden on her own mother, she met the moment with joy. Deep down inside, I felt happy because I knew I was bringing something so beautiful into this world. And then when I stopped and thought about it, well, you know, what happens if he doesn't want to be part of the baby's life? What am I going to do? Everything's going to fall on me. I saw my mother's struggle. Do I really want to go through with this? Is this the right moment? So many questions popped into my head at that very moment, and I was just confused. My two minutes of happiness that I had first felt drifted away slowly when I started realizing that bringing a kid into this world was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. She was five months along. Her boyfriend reacted angrily and pushed her towards getting an abortion, and she conceded, but when she went to the clinic in Manhattan, there was nothing they could do. They had me speak to a counselor about maybe putting the baby up for adoption. And I knew that was the best and only option I had. Emily and Sophia were interviewed by my colleague, Heather Gould, who's here as part of the Turnaway Study, a 10-year project led by demographer Dr. Diana Green Foster, who's also here. The study followed 956 women who sought abortions across the United States, including over 160 women who gave birth after they were denied access to the abortions they wanted because they were over the gestational age limits of the clinics where they sought care. However, in my work with Foster Gould and our colleague epidemiologist, Dr. Lauren Ralph, we found that only 15 of them, or 9%, including both Emily and Sophia, relinquished their infants for adoption. That meant that a full 91% of women denied abortions went on to parent the children to whom they gave birth as a consequence of that denial. When we calculated this result, Foster was surprised. Why do you think it's so low? She asked me. 
After all, she was comparing the 9% to the 100% who had wanted to have an abortion and was surprised that the overwhelming majority were now parenting. I, on the other hand, compared the 9% to the estimated 0.5% of all American births that led to adoptions and felt it was astronomical. These seemingly contradictory interpretations rely on underlying truths about adoption relinquishment. It remains a rare experience when compared to the relatively common experiences of parenting and abortion, but it becomes meaningfully more frequent when women's choices are constrained. There are myriad ways that abortion is excluded as an option for women who might otherwise consider it. Indeed, for many relinquishing mothers who framed adoption as their best choice, abortion was never really on the table. Some discovered their pregnancies quite late, perhaps when they went into labor or within mere days or weeks of giving birth. These women experienced the shock of learning that they would soon be having a baby, perhaps even within the next month, and lacked both the option of having an abortion, which some acknowledged they would have chosen had they discovered their pregnancy sooner, and the time to prepare to parent, which others acknowledged they might have preferred if they'd had time to get ready. Under these circumstances, adoption felt like the only immediate solution. Other women who were interested in abortion never pursued one because they couldn't afford it or because there were no providers in their community. Even though these women never made it to the clinic, their stories were similar to Emily's and Sophia's. They could not or did not want to parent, but they never felt like abortion was available to them. Relinquishment is never common, but when you remove other options, it occurs more frequently. That was a lot of numbers that I just got through, so we'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Sisson gave me the opportunity to read the book um, maybe two months ago, Um, and when we first met, one of the things that really connected us is that I am an adopted parent. Um, my wife and I adopted our daughter uh, in 2014. Uh, her birth mother lives in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, and we were there when she was born and the circumstances uh, of her situation are not very different than the ones that have been uh, articulated in the history and study and, and research uh, represented in, in Dr. Sisson's book. And so it was one of the reasons why I was super excited to be a part of today's conversation, because there is a story uh, to, be, to be told in research and data um, to underscore uh, uh, the options that women have or don't have uh, based on their life situation, circumstances, and some would even say the places in which they live. My daughter was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, at post um, uh, the time where the governor of Louisiana essentially eliminated all access to Medicaid health care services. Uh, and so her birth mother couldn't access the care that she needed, um, even though she had her Medicaid card. She could not access the care that she was in search of to explore those options. And so it's great that we are able to really have this conversation, even in this moment, I think is quite timely, honestly, that we explore these conversations. And so if you're okay, I'm happy to sort of jump, uh, jump right in. Can you talk to us about how this sort of practice of contemporary abortion emerged, how it, how it came about, um, and has adoption really always looked the way in which you describe in Relinquish? Yeah. So the contemporary practice of adoption, the idea that we are permanently ending the legal relationship between parent and child, and then forming legally an entirely new family as if the child were born to those parents, that is a relatively historically recent practice, like a hundred and change years or so. Um, when we look back 
at family separation before that, it was often uh, more of an informal practice. So kinship care placements, extended care placements, or the market was inverted from what it typically is. So if you were a poor person and you had more children than you could afford, there was no there was no market to adopt your child, right? And so when you look back at, you know, sort of the the orphan train era of uh, New York City, right? You see a lot of poor families that were either sending babies to baby farmers who would take care of them for a small fee, um, using foundling homes, um, or relying on the orphan trains to, to send children west. Now, this was not ever a reflection of a lack of desire to parent. It was a lack of capacity to parent. But around, again, 100 little over 100 years ago, you see a flip, right? And there are a couple of things that happened at this time. And, and I'm going to try to stay out of like too much of like the, the historical socio-cultural weeds here. It is my tendency as a sociologist, but I'm going to do my best. Um, because before that, families had families of working class had generally had children because there was an economic value to having children, right? You had children because they could provide labor in the home, on the farm, they could go out and work for wages and bring that back to contribute to the family well-being. That's not why we have children today. I do not have my kids because they are economically beneficial to the household. <laughs> um, and, and that's when we start to see the flip and the increasing sentimentality of parenthood. We have we have children now because we want to raise children. We want to have a family, and that is increasingly how we understand family, is, is having children as part of the household. Um, and, and that changed. And suddenly, once that shift is made, then you do have a market demand for children. And really, since then, you have always had more of a demand from prospective adoptive parents than you've had babies available. So we do have this myth that we have so many children that are available in the private adoption system that are in need of parents. Actually, we have between 10 and 45 waiting families for every infant that's relinquished for adoption. So demand is very, very high. Supply of babies is very, very low, right? And when you look back around this time that this sort of market-based adoption became a thing, you also had a very enterprising and like almost cartoonishly villainous figure um, named Georgia Tan, who ran the children's home in Tennessee. And there weren't a lot of laws and policies regulating adoption at the time. And Georgia was like, well, I can make some money here. And I'm talking about this flippantly, but Georgia Tan quite literally would steal children um, from poor families. She would say that she was taking them to the doctor and never bring them back. She would tell mothers at a delivery that their baby had died in delivery and go and relinquish their baby. And because she was engaged in these practices, she became really influential in practices like sealing original birth certificates, right? In ensuring that adoption represented a permanent legal severance between parent and child. Um, in introducing birth certificates that say that the adoptive parents gave birth to this child effectively and putting that on top. And that is the adopted person's sole legal identity. And these are still practices that we engage in today. Georgia also had like an incredible like Machiavellian intelligence um, because she would facilitate adoptions for really powerful people, right? The governor of New York at the time, he was an adoptive father. Georgia facilitated his adoptions, right? And so when 
George, when New York is writing their uh, adoption policy, Georgia Tan is right there to help ensure that these states are having these really abusive policies. Um, and, you know, when you look back over history, you can never, well, there are a few occasions on which you can really blame one person for a really long-term detrimental effect. But I think this is really one of those cases where a lot of abusive policies have come from one person kind of stepping into the void and taking advantage of the situation. And, you know, we can also get in, and I do get into the book about a broader history of family separation outside of the private adoption system. So looking at the ways that enslaved families were separated from their children, looking at the ways Native families were separated from their children in boarding schools, and then later the Indian Adoption Project. I think all of these ways of understanding family separation have shaped how we understand who is worthy of being a parent, who is worth being a mother, and who is worth us investing in as a parent. So these aren't these like obscure historic moments. Some of them are quite literally still shaping the legal system that adoption occurs in today. And some of them have just created these social cultural beliefs about how we support families and children. That was a lot. I think all of us learned. <laughs> all of us uh, learned something uh, in in that sort of brief synopsis. And I can appreciate having read the book. It it is a brief synopsis uh, of the history of sort of how we got here. And so you talk in the book about this sort of phenomenon, as you mentioned, about like um, the developing market. Uh, for for babies, and you know, my family interacted with adopt with the private adoption agency uh, as well as the um, uh, public um, public systems that are available. Can you talk a little bit about the tactics that agencies and and sort of systems use to sort of meet the demand of the market? Yes, um, and I think when I talk about this, when we use market language, it seems very um, in some ways. Um, and because I know that we're talking about human beings, but I also think it's important to use market terminology because that is quite literally what it is. And I think it's important to recognize that. And when you have a market system within capitalism with really high demand and really low supply, facilitators are going to be very motivated to find ways of increasing supply. And what, when we talk about supply, we are talking about human children. And so a lot of the mothers that I interviewed at the time in their pregnancy, when they're considering adoption or not even considering adoption, but they're at a point in their pregnancy where like things generally aren't going that well, right? Maybe their boyfriend sucked. The boyfriends almost always sucked. Um, <laughs> to be fair, um, their own parents aren't super supportive of them. Um, maybe they don't have stable housing. Um, some of them were unhoused at the time. Um, some of them had a job, were working, but they weren't making a living wage. They didn't see how they were going to be able to afford to parent a child. And maybe they go online and they Google, you know, help for single mothers in California or how to get on WIC in California. And they start getting ads for adoption agencies mm -hmm. because adoption agencies are really aggressive about buying search terms on really anything that suggests that you are trying or preparing to parent a child in poverty. 
Um, they will also uh, do things like your phone knows everything about you. I don't have mine on three. Um, so it doesn't know one thing about me now, I guess. But, um, you know, if you have your phone and you go to visit a Planned Parenthood, an abortion clinic somewhere, um, you're, you'll start getting at, they'll geofence the adoption, or sorry, the abortion clinic, and you'll start getting advertising for adoption agencies. They'll also do this to methadone clinics and drug treatment facilities. Um, they'll also do this to WIC sites um, or public hospitals, um, Title 10 clinics, right? So you'll see this coming up a lot where um, they're really targeted um, with these ads. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, I love targeted advertising. I only sold stuff I actually want. Um, but in this case, like it's it's quite literally talking about how they're thinking about their child and, and how they're planning. And it becomes very quickly for people who are in a really vulnerable place. Um, it's talking directly to all of their insecurities. So they'll start getting advertisements from prospective adoptive parents who, you know, as the expectant mother over here is like struggling in her relationship and the adoptive parent profiles are like, here are our wedding pictures and they don't have the support from their own parents. And it's like, here's our whole family at Sunday dinner and here are our parents who can't wait to be grandparents. And as they're dealing with unstable housing, like here's our suburban home with our pool and our safe neighborhoods and our excellent public schools. And, um, you know, I think that it, it, they really quickly came to a place where they were almost infatuated with a lot of the adoptive parents and they felt really obligated to them. And a lot of these adoptive parents were like picture perfect, right? And and it was it, it wasn't just marketing. It was marketing. It was good marketing because it worked because they did relinquish. But it also was a way of speaking directly to everything that these expectant mothers felt was lacking in their own lives. Thank you for like put, bringing us all into into this experience in a meaningful way. And I, you know, I'd be you know not being uh, who you all are getting to know me as as your senators, like uh, being direct and honest. I wouldn't be being that person if I wasn't sitting here thinking about my own uh, experience and you know knowing what it was like to be contacted by adoption uh, agencies. Uh, and, you know, knowing uh, our uh, daughter's uh, birth mother and who she is as a human being, a wonderful human being, a great mom to her, her other children. But as I'm, I'm listening to you, I really am thinking about like, what must she have been going through uh, as she was thinking about making what was, uh, I'm sure, a very tough decision for her. Let's shift now to the environment that we're in uh, post Dobbs. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on how we uh, and the greater we should be thinking um, about adoption and reproductive choice post Dobbs. Yes. So, um, you know, I was working on a state of collection for a really long time. I started doing these interviews in 2010 when I was a graduate student on the other side of the country. I had no children and um, things have changed. Um, and uh, a little bit. I, just a little bit. <laughs> and I did my second round of data collection in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. And that was also interesting. And it is also why my children's nanny is like the most important acknowledgement in there because this absolutely would not have happened if she weren't downstairs doing kindergarten on Zoom the whole time. Um, so I, I, again, this book, if you take one thing away from this book, it takes a lot of people to care for children. That's what I'm expressing here. But my point is to say, I was working on this book long before I knew that the Dobbs decision was coming. And then for a little while after I knew it was coming. And then, of course, after it came down. And um, 
I wrote the book proposal and it could have been a very niche academic book. And um, we, my husband and I were like quite literally listening to the Dobbs oral arguments on that December morning. And Justice Coney Barrett keeps bringing up this idea of, well, like why do women need access to abortion if they can just terminate their parental rights? And that averts the burden of parenthood. And my husband turns to me and goes, you should probably send out your book proposal. Like, you should probably send it out today. Um, because I think that this area that I'd been working in for a while, like the immediate connections were really apparent. And, and th- so what I, the, why I tell that story is that people are ready to think about these things more critically now, but these aren't new challenges that have just come out of our country since the Dobbs decision. You know, what we learned from the Turnaway study um, was really that when women are denied access to abortion, far, far more of them are going to be parenting children that they did not intend to parent at that time in their lives than are going to be relinquishing for adoption, right? 91% of them were parenting after being forced to continue pregnancies that they didn't intend to complete. Um, so that speaks to the ways that we're going to need to support families that are formed because abortion access is not available. And adoption is never going to be the solution for that. It's never going to be what women prefer. Um, but even when we look at abortion patients who are able to get their abortions, there was one survey of abortion patients. And they were asked to say true or false to a bunch of statements. And one of the statements was like, I'm interested in, in placing this baby for adoption. And literally 99% said false. Like, just no, 99%. 1% said kind of. 0% said yes, right? This is just not something that people who are seeking abortion care are broadly interested in. They know about adoption. So that usually the sort of anti-abortion response is like, oh, we have to go educate them. No, everybody knows adoption exists. Um, It's just not something that they're interested in for themselves and their families. If they are carrying a pregnancy to term, they intend to raise that child. Now, for some... As you know, in Emily and Sophia's stories I talked about, for some it becomes a lifeline, right? With the, if parenting becomes impossible and abortion is inaccessible, they will turn to adoption. But it's never from a position of making an empowered choice. So, I, I have my own experience. My as a as a black woman living in, in the country, in this country, uh, my wife and I. Um, you know, had a picture in our, in our minds, um, about what the process would be like and, um, what it would take and require for us to complete, uh, uh, the adoption process. But we learned some hard lessons. Um, one of the hard lessons that we learned was that race is a factor. Talk to us about what you learned uh, through your research and what you write about in Relinquished about how race shows up in this contemporary system. Yeah. So when we look at private adoption historically, and not that, like pre-Roe, so in the 70s, it was almost entirely white women. And that's because the market demand was for white babies, right? There wasn't, you, you could not convince white families to adopt children of color, particularly black children. You could convince them to adopt native children. Native children were kind of marketed as like closer to being white. Um, and that was the the federal investment in the Indian Adoption Project at the time. Um, but you couldn't, transracial adoption was a tremendous rarity at the time. And um, that has shifted, 
right? So when we look back at the last 10 years of data about there's, it's still the majority white women that are participating, but it's only 55%. We're seeing a lot more women of color participating in the private adoption system now. Um, and that's due to a couple of things. One is that now you now transracial adoption it is something that that white families engage in to a far greater degree that largely came about from a rise in international adoption that happened in the 90s and early 2000s um, from Korea, Central and South America, China, um, and and then on the tail end, Africa and Haiti. Um, and then people are comfortable with transracial adoption. Um, and it even becomes this sort of like progressive bonafide to be adopting children of color, this like emblem of us existing in a post-racial society to be forming adoptive bonds across racial lines. Um, then, I mean, international adoption is very, very low at this point. But what, so what you do have is women of color participating in both the private system because so much of the private relinquishment is determined by poverty. And we know what racialized poverty looks like in the United States. So that disproportionately impacts women of color and particularly Black families. Um, and then you also have Black women at increased surveillance within the child welfare and family policing systems that make them more vulnerable to family separation within that system. So, I mean, there are innumerable ways that race shapes the demand for children, who participates, under what circumstances, the kind of support that families are getting that limits their options further. Um, you also have, I always have to remind people, like, just because it's white women that are participating doesn't mean the children are white, right? There were a lot of white mothers of biracial children that were relinquishing their children. And some of them, that's because their families were racist and they did. I can't bring home this biracial child to my family. They're not going to support me. Um, and for some of them, it was more complicated. Um, I'm going to read really quickly an excerpt from... Alyssa. Um, so Alyssa grew up in a quaint, picturesque town in New York where Manhattanites would frequently visit to escape the city in the summer or view the changing leaves and go apple picking in the autumn. A transracial and transnational adoptee from Central America, she was raised by white parents and was one of the only children of color in her small community. Her adoption was the defining experience of her childhood. Being a transracial adoptee has been the hardest thing I've ever faced, I would say, besides my own daughter's adoption. It was really tricky growing up to feel like I fit in. I never really felt like I belonged anywhere because my parents were older and they were white and I wasn't. Just to paint a picture, I was one of four kids of color at my elementary school, and that really took a toll on me. It was really hard for me growing up being racially isolated. That's kind of the basis for everything in childhood. I never really fit in or belonged, and I definitely felt like it played the biggest role in my life, me being adopted. I know other adopted people don't feel that way, but I also know a lot of adopted people that do feel that way. Despite these critical feelings about her own experience, when Alyssa found out she was pregnant, she immediately thought about adoption. Adoption was just so central in my life that it was almost obvious that that was what I would do with my daughter if I didn't choose to terminate the pregnancy, which I had considered briefly because I was young. Aly Alyssa entertained the idea of parenting and acknowledged that her adoptive parents were financially comfortable and could have supported her, but she also felt that they would be disappointed in her if she decided to raise her daughter. When she told them that she was pregnant, her adoptive mother cried and compared it to a death in the family. Faced with her adoptive parents' tears, Alyssa immediately told them that she was considering adoption. I think that gave them the confidence to just chill out a little bit. They thought that was good, obviously. They adopted me, and they didn't see anything hard about that at all in their experience. 
Alyssa then began the adoption process and was soon connected with the adoption facilitator who had managed her own adoption. She still had mixed feelings, though. I really wish someone had been like, all right, well, we're on your team. We want you to make an informed decision. No one did that at all. No one, she said. I think it's so messed up. I think if someone had expressed to me that they were on my team and they supported me no matter what, I don't know what I would have chosen, but I'm mad that I didn't know. Without the supportive team and without her parents' enthusiasm for adopt and with her parents' enthusiasm for adoption driving her forward, the process unfolded quickly. On one point, though, she did hold her ground. Alyssa was firm that her daughter would not have white adoptive parents. Her lawyers didn't have any prospective adoptive parents that matched Alyssa's own Latina background. They did, however, have one Asian American couple, so Alyssa chose them. When it came to my daughter, I knew for a fact she's not having white parents. I'm not doing this to her. Growing up, I wanted white skin. I didn't like myself all because I wasn't white and because I was surrounded by white people all the time. There was no way in hell I was going to do that to her. I refused to interview white parents. I was just very set on finding someone that might resemble her. I didn't find any Latino adoptive parents, but I found an Asian couple and I interviewed them both. And then I chose a second couple to be her parents. They're not white at least. Yet having her daughter raised in yet another culture, one that didn't match either the one Alyssa was born into nor the one she was raised in, left a disconnect between Alyssa and her daughter, Layla. They acknowledge that Layla is Latina, but it doesn't really feel like it's a thing for them. But honestly, I don't know what that would look like if it was part of her life. I wasn't raised Latina, if that makes sense. I was raised with a white family. If I wanted her to have that connection, I would have to learn it along with her. It's not like I have this entire culture that I want to show her and make her part of because I just, I don't have that either. I've done a lot of soul searching, going to therapy, and trying to make sense of things in my own head to understand what happened after I placed my daughter. It made me wake up to the reality of what adoption is and how loss and grief are the central themes of what adoption is, even if there can be healthy and happy parts. I believe that I have a healthy relationship with both my adoptions, both as an adoptee and a birth mom. But I did a lot of coming out of the fog. That's what many birth moms call it. It's when you wake up to the reality of what adoption is that it's really challenging sometimes. I did a lot of that after I placed my daughter. Even though Alyssa was optimistic about her ongoing relationship with her daughter, she acknowledged, I'm not sure in hindsight if I would choose adoption again for her, truly understanding the complexities that I do now. Hmm. Doctor, there's a, um, I had a couple other questions, but I want to just quickly pivot because uh, we're running out of time and I want to make sure that the audience questions actually do get asked. One question that, that came was that now that your book is published, is there an additional chapter? <laughs> that you wish you had added or that you could add? I think it's a boring answer if I say no, but I, I do think I got it all in there. <laughs> um, and, and because my publicist is, it keeps me like, you need to write an op-ed. And I was like, I don't know what to write an op-ed about. And, and, um, and, and she's like, well, uh, just put whatever didn't make it in the book. I was like, no, it all got in there. Like, I, I worked on this for a really long time, and I wanted to make sure that I had my chance to say what I needed to say. So I, I don't think there is. Uh, that's fine. I think it's a perfectly respectable answer. Um, during your research for this book, was there anything that you learned that shocked or surprised you? I think that there was a lot that surprised me. You know, I knew very little about the adoption system when I started on this project. So almost everything that I learned um, was novel in some way. I think what was most interesting, and I think one of the most important things about the book, is when I did 10-year follow-up to see how even mothers who were feeling really optimistic earlier in their adoptions, how critical of a place they came to after time. 
Um, and, and there were a lot of things that changed in their own lives, in the lives of the adoptive parents and families for the child, um, that made them feel much more critical of the system. Um, but that was, that was what surprised me that they were really how poorly mothers were served by relinquishment in the longer term. So there's a question that uh, uses quotation marks, and I'm going to do air quotes because uh, there's the best way that I can As articulate I the question. Yeah. <laughs> Is motherhood still an acceptable term? Have some replaced it with parenthood in order to be inclusive of non-binary and gender expansive folks? It's a good question. Um, all of the people that I interviewed did identify as mothers. Um, they didn't all identify as women, but they did all, they were all birthing parents and they did all identify as mothers. Um, so part of that is speaking directly to just my, my research sample. Um, but I, I do also think that a lot of these questions are deeply gendered and how we think about motherhood as separate from parenthood and certainly as separate from fatherhood. Um, so that wasn't using the diction of motherhood isn't a choice that I've just walked into, like not being sensitive to people for whom that identity doesn't apply. But it's about looking at the specific ways that I think our regulation of parenthood and our support for parents does occur within a really gendered society. And are those who make money in the adoption industry involved with the anti-abortion activism? Oh, yes. Yes. So so there will be more in-demand healthy white newborns. Uh, Yes, for sure. But um, maybe not quite. Well, yes, but maybe, again, not quite for as cynical of a reason as suggested here, though also for that reason. Not entirely for that reason, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, So, you know, the anti, I like... I posted on Twitter um, like a year ago and I was, cause I kept getting calls from reporters being like, um, like, Oh, at, right after the Dobbs decision, like, Oh, our adoption agencies going to be able to handle like the increase in babies. And I was like, yeah, they've been planning for this, right? Like, like adoption agencies are the anti, I made this Venn diagram, like adoption agencies are the anti-abortion movement, are the child welfare and family policing system. And then people on Twitter were like, where's white supremacy? And I'm like, that's the paper. I don't know. Um, like it's under everything. Um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, Crisis pregnancy centers and the anti-abortion movement are deeply tied with adoption agencies. Absolutely. Um, and most adoption agencies are nonprofit organizations in this country. Um, some of them are for profit and they have a direct profit incentive. But even the nonprofit agencies, um, they have to be facilitating a certain number of adoptions in order for their organization to stay in business. And pre-Dobbs, a lot of smaller agencies were closing. Um, one of the largest agencies in the country stopped accepting applications from prospective adoptive parents simply because there wasn't enough supply, Right. And I think that it's important to understand that I don't know to what extent the calculus of we need more adoptable babies played into the Dobbs decision. I do think it made a lot of anti-abortion people more comfortable with the Dobbs decision. Um, 
so they're all related. And I apologize. Um, you know, I'm a little bit shaken. And so I'm sorry that I'm not being my very most articulate right now. Um, and I'm not just distracted by the protesters, but, you know, it's, this is a hard, like this is, as I said, this is a hard moment for our country. I believe in my book. I'm really proud of it. It's a big part of my world right now. But I also, like I said, I think that it's important to think about how all of these intersect with conversations that aren't happening in this room. So I, that's why so many of us are proud to be here to support you. So, uh, another question, can you speak to transnational adoption specifically calls to adopt kids from humanitarian crises like genocide in Gaza? Um, every time a country is in crisis, Americans like to think that part of our response should be adopting the children. Um, you saw a huge uptick in adoptions from Africa at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. You saw a huge rush of adoptions, adoptions that have proven to be illegal after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Um, you saw a lot of interest in adoptions from Ukraine after the Russian invasion. And yeah, we're seeing questions about adopting Gazan children now. Um, Generally, countries don't export their children if they're in, like, a safe geopolitical space. Um, I do not think that this is a way for us to be conducting our foreign policy, obviously. Um, The question about the the rhetoric around adopting Gazan children is, and I'm not an expert on transnational adoption. Um, But this refrain is particularly disturbing because it is so out of line with how adoption is understood within the Islamic faith. um, And it reflects no nuance there. Um, And will do nothing to meet the humanitarian need of what's happening in the Middle East right now. Um, So this really white savior idea that we need to come into countries in crisis as part of a meaningful humanitarian response and remove their children. Um, I don't think it's coherent from a justice perspective. Right. And the last question, um, I think it's a great, great way to sort of wrap our time. Can you recommend some resources for someone interested in learning more about adoption? Um, I have a book that I'd recommend. (laughs) Um, I also think I have learned a tremendous amount from the voices of adopted people who are tremendously um, active and vocal on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. I'm not cool enough to be on TikTok, so I haven't been as present there. Um, but I mean, I have like a footnote in this book where I like, oh gosh, it's the most dangerous thing to do where you try to like list everyone and you know you left off like two people and they're going to find out and you're going to hear about it. But um, like I've learned just so much about the impact that adoption has on adopted people from a lot of these voices. Um, and I think that this is a real moment for them to find each other and build conversation with each other in a way that they haven't been able to at prior moments. So that would be my biggest recommendation is finding ways to connect with adopted people. 
Um, I list some really good memoirs from adopted people in the book too. Um, you know, I think that the voices of relinquishing parents are underheard. Um, I am really, I have a huge privilege in helping bring their stories together in this book. Um, but this is not a comprehensive picture of adoption, right? I think it's one story that we haven't heard as much of, but the other piece is really hearing from adopted people, adoptees themselves. Round of applause for Dr. Griffin. If you have not yet gotten your copy of Relinquished, I encourage you to do so. It is a really, really great read. We, you can get the book here or uh, at your local bookstore. Somebody told me Dr. Sisson is going to hang out and sign <laughs> some books uh, uh, after after today's conversation. But we appreciate you so much for your scholarship, for your presence and leadership uh, and just for being vulnerable in a really tough time uh, for for all of us, for our country and, and for the world. And so uh, if you'd also like to support uh, the Commonwealth Club, we appreciate them for being our gracious hosts uh, tonight. And you want to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please also visit their website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Thank you all again for your time, uh, for your talent, for your treasure, for those of you to help uh, do some research uh, in the book and for just spending some meaningful time in community, in conversation, learning about some of the incredible work that our that everyday people are doing uh, to make our community stronger and better. So thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Sisson. Thank you, Commonwealth Club. Have a great night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.